0: This morning, and uh, I'm just excited to have another opportunity to share with this congregation. And just a heads up, next Sunday we'll be looking at Psalm 139, which is a great psalm. Uh, It's a psalm that, uh, as you understand it properly, is very comforting and encouraging, That God is always with you. He knows everything about you. Uh, You can't go anywhere where God isn't already there. And if you're headed in the right direction, (laughs) that's good news. That's really wonderful. Uh, It might make you a little nervous if you're running away from God. You really can't run away from him. It's sort of like Jonah's situation. Uh, You can't run away from him. But anyway, that's Psalm 139, and uh, we'll have the privilege of looking at it together next week. Uh, I hope all of you have this uh, sheet here. And uh, I spelled it out like this so that you can follow along. And uh, there will be a quiz at the end of the sermon. And, uh, <laughs> but anyway, listen carefully, will you, as I read the whole psalm, and then we'll jump into it. Beginning in verse one, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then a description of what it looked like, the type of life they were living. They have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong, they are free from common human burdens, they are not plagued by human ills, therefore pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence, from their calloused heart comes iniquity, their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice, with arrogance they threaten oppression. Their malice lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I'd spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny, and here's where the psalm changes. Surely, you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they're destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes, when you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire beside you? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Now, today is opportunity to look at a wonderful psalm. It's very relevant today to all of us. It's been meaningful to me for years. Uh, The psalmist, as he says so clearly, nearly walked away from God. He thought further about it and he reaffirmed his faith. As one person put it, it's a tale of a heart seduced and then to fellowship restored. Perhaps some of you have gone through the same thing, stopped church, stopped praying, stopped reading scripture, starting to make ungodly decisions, and if you look back you might say, well it was caused by doubts, by pain I was going through, where was God when I needed him? By unanswered prayers, You prayed and prayed and prayed and it hasn't happened. And so you're given up on God. Maybe God failed you, or sometimes every bit is bad. Maybe fellow Christians failed you, and so you, at some time in the past, wandered away. And now you're back again. It may be that some of you are just in the process of kind of disconnecting from church, from God from everything you ever believed. Was there a time when you almost gave up your relationship with God? Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. Have you ever been through that? Come on, raise your hand if you've struggled. Okay, I think we all have. More people on this side of the church. That's obviously either the honest side or the worst side. So let's say it again. Uh, any of you struggled like this? You really... Wondered, you came to doubt your faith in some way. Okay, this is a psalm for you then. Listen closely. There are broader issues that are faced when you look at this psalm. Uh, It really has to do with the fundamental questions. Who am I? Why am I here? And, of course, what happens next? And you ask the question, have I taken the wrong road? Where has it taken me? And what will be there when I arrive? These are the questions we all have to ask ourselves. Who am I? Why am I here? What will be at the end of that road when I finally arrive? You see, we're talking about the difference between a biblical worldview, how you look at the world from a biblical point of view, or a worldly worldview. The psalmist begins this way. He says, surely, or certainly. This was a conclusion. It's kind of interesting. He takes the conclusion and puts it at the beginning. But this is where he's going as he goes through this psalm. Surely, certainly, God is good. And then he defines this good. What does it mean? And he's talking about this intimate, personal, close relationship with God that's possible for each one of us. And all the blessing that flows out of that. Surely God is good to Israel. Uh, And he's talking here about the true Israel. This defined for us in the next phrase. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. They have a single-hearted devotion to God. Not perfect, necessarily. We can't be, but uh, that's our focus. Surely God is good to those who have a single-hearted devotion to him. Now that's his conclusion. At the end of this whole struggle that he went through, this is what he concluded. He starts that way. Then he tells us about the problem he went through. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold. It reminds me when I was a junior high kid and knew no fear. Uh, showing off to some friends, I started climbing up a fir tree. There weren't any branches for about the first 15 or 20 feet. I just climbed on the real rough bark, you know, like a cat would go up, just like that, and I got up to a bunch of rotten limbs. They were just sticking out there a little ways on each side, and they'd rotted off right to those stubs, and I kept going up and up and up until I was about 50 feet in the air. Then I got to thinking. Then I got to thinking, I should have thought first. You know, this is dangerous. It's really kind of stupid. And if I would fall, that would probably be the end of John Aldrich. A little marker down there, this is where he hit. (laughs) But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. You have to wonder what brought on these thoughts. Perhaps... He just didn't think. Intellectual failure. He had all these issues, and he just knee-jerked in one direction or the other, and he never really thought. That hurts a lot of people. Maybe it was poor theology. You know, somebody told him, uh, if you put money in the offering, you're going to be rich and famous. There's a lot of garbage out there, if you don't mind me saying it. And in the end, it really doesn't work out. But he bought into the idea that... uh, You know, health and wealth, Uh, God's your servant there to do whatever you want. Life is going to be perfect and wonderful. Well, he never really understood scripture. Poor theology. Uh, You see, turning from God to denial can be a, a fatal fall. And then he tells us what turned him away. He says, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, note here the hint of greed. He was envious. He saw their prosperity. He wanted some of it. There's greed. There's self-centeredness. There's self-pity. Here I am following God and he hasn't done anything for me. I'm poor. I don't have what all these people have who've turned away from God, who've mocked God. He's questioning God's justice. His complaint was, I want, I want, I need to have it all in this life. And obviously had little connection, little understanding of the connection between this life and the next. In his thinking at that point in time, it all had to happen here and now or it wasn't going to happen. And then we have in verses 4 through 12 the imagined good life of the rebellious. It appears successful. It appears wonderful. It appears desirous. They have no struggles. That sounds good, doesn't it? You know, just to flow through life like this, no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. And there's a danger here. It's the false view that beauty or athletic ability or intellect and the resulting fame and money bring happiness. You know, if you're beautiful, if you are famous, if you are athletically gifted, If you this and that, it'll bring you happiness. You know, you don't have to stand in line at uh, Safeway very long and your eye will go over to the magazine rack, and here you have stories that are blazed all over the covers. I never read those things. You don't have to. You know what's in it. But here's all the stories of adultery and divorce and drugs and suicide and anger and bitterness. These are all people, and it hasn't worked for them. So now they're hurting each other. There's that false view that beauty or athletic ability or intellect And all the resulting fame and so on will bring you happiness. Well, it probably does to some people, but there's no guarantee at all. He goes on to say, therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. Uh, These things are just worn like jewelry. Uh, They're not ashamed to say the things that they do. From their calloused heart comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. Here is the ever-present sin nature expressing itself without reservation. They just frankly do what they want to do. And there's no one there to stop them. They scoff. They speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten, threaten oppression. Here are rebels without a moral world view. There's no right or wrong. And uh, there are no restraints. They live for themselves, and they're willing to hurt anybody who gets in their way. And then here's an interesting one. Here's the ultimate arrogance. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Having succumbed to evil, they push it to an even greater scale. They become vocal, thinking they're authorities on life and truth. They claim to speak for God, and they seek to direct the whole earth. And it has an impact. And here it may be talking about us. Therefore, their people turn to them, wannabes. You see, rich people, evil people, outspoken people attract like-minded people. And we have to be careful here too. There's the danger of hero worship. We are fans of certain people. It may be because they're beautiful. It may be because they're talented. Maybe athletic and so on. And uh, we can get sucked into that. You have to ask yourself, who do you admire? Who do you follow? Who influences you? And then the question, are they good and upright and moral people? And if they're not, you can be led astray by being their fans. They ask the question, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? You see, here they're denying the omnipresence of God. Scripture tells us clearly that God's everywhere. Scripture tells us that God knows everything. And they act as if God can't know, he doesn't see, he doesn't care. And they want it to be that way. You see, very often we shape our concept of God to accommodate our sins. And if we're into something we know we shouldn't be into, we tend to tell ourselves, well, God can't know about that, he doesn't care, Uh, he doesn't see that and that's the mindset these people who are in rebellion against God they think that way he concludes this section by saying this is what the wicked are like they're always free of care they go on amassing wealth he says it's a desirable lifestyle I want to be like them how tempting it is to think that way The remedy, on the other hand, is knowledge of God and His Word. It keeps us from this common error. Now, the psalmist envied this freedom. This freedom to allow himself to live without restraints. To do exactly what he wanted to do. With nothing governing his behavior. Now, perhaps he didn't want to be bad, he just didn't want to be good. Did you ever feel that way? You know, if you're a serious Christian, there's a, let me put this gently, there's a burden, as it were. There are obligations. There's ways that we should act and must not act. And he didn't want any more of that. He didn't necessarily want to be as bad as these people. He just didn't want to be good. He wanted to be free to do what he wanted to do, to follow his instincts, uh, his drives, just whatever. He asks this interesting question. Does it really pay to follow God's way? He says, Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure, and I've washed my hands in innocence. He'd done the right things, but did it really matter? He's thinking to himself, I've missed out on so much fun. Think of the fun, the good life, the self-indulgence. I've missed out on all that, but for what? In vain. I've kept my heart pure, and I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted. Look at his description of following God. All day long I've been afflicted. Every morning brings new punishments. Uh, The spiritual disciplines of a godly person were seen as burdensome. You know, his heart wasn't right. He wasn't in fellowship with God. He was just trying to do the things he felt he needed to do to be a good person. And it was burdensome. All day long I've been afflicted. Every morning brings new punishments. The spiritual disciplines. Prayer. Meditating on scripture. Being good to other people. Worshiping God. Listening for his voice. Seeking to obey him. Instead of being uplifting and inspiring to him, he saw them as burdensome. He was in mental turmoil. Plus, the desperation is life moved on and he failed to enjoy the good life. You ever been there? You know, that time when you were committed to the Lord and everything was positive and great and you could just sense God everywhere in your life, and then it kind of, uh, the air was let out of the tire and it just kind of deflated. There you are, stuck with a flat tire. You decide... (laughs) There's got to be something better out there. Well, you don't give up on your religion. You don't dare do that, because what if it's true? You want to at least have one foot in the door. But in terms of living your life on a daily basis, you're living more like your unsaved friends than you do like Christians who know and love the Lord. And then there's dealing with doubts. As a believer, how does one deal with such tempting thoughts? It's better on the other side. I need to get over there before it's too late. How do you deal with that? Well, one of the things he says very wisely, if I'd spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. Here he's addressing God. He says if I'd let all my feelings out, it would have been destructive to those who are seeking to follow you. There's the need to honestly search out truth, to build up oneself, and then to follow. When I tried to understand all this, he says, it troubled me deeply. There's that painful struggle that arises from challenging issues and a fervent search for truth. It's not easy if you're stuck in one of these things where you've kind of wandered away, you've got work to do to get it back together again. There's a submitting, a yielding to God. There's an honest search for truth. You may have to ask questions. You may have to talk to people. You may have to dig it out from God's Word. There's work to do. He says, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. I'd like to say that there are answers for every question that you might have. You might be sort of drifted away and you're kind of hung up on some sort of a theological issue or something God didn't do for you or whatever. Friend, you need to talk to somebody. You need to schedule a time to see one of the pastors here, one of the mature Christians. There are answers. There are good answers. I went through this whole thing when I was a student up at Western. Came from a Christian home, wonderful parents, I read my Bible literally every day from junior high age, went to Multnomah, a great Bible college, and I came up here to Western. And I ran across things I never really ran across before. You know, is the Bible really true? Oh, I assumed it was. Uh, I remember the first anthropology class I took the professor got up and the first thing he did is he said I'm going to change your mind and he says don't tell this to your Aunt Hattie she's the old lady that reads her Bible and believes everything in it even the fly specks and he started tearing things down (laughs) that was all new to me and I made the mistake of thinking these guys are scholars they're honest people, they're seeing it the way it really is, and uh, it wasn't fitting with what I'd learned. And I went through a huge struggle. Uh, is the Bible really God's word? Is it really true? Uh, and I, Am I really a creature from the hand of God, or am I just a chance collection of atoms that has no significance at all? here now and gone forever. Who am I? What am I? The solution to this was quite interesting. (laughs) Sense of humor on God's part. I was up there at Western by myself the first year, second year, Linda and I got married, and I admired her simple faith. She just believed. And in a way, I kind of, eh, I don't know. And then God stepped up, and this was interesting. I got a request to become the pastor of Deming Presbyterian Church. And a little church out in the country, absolutely desperate. It was either me or close the doors, I know that. But uh, every week, I had to come up with a sermon. I found myself having to study the Bible. And rather than just kind of walk away from it, I was forced back into it. Thank you, God. And I started thinking through the whole issue of apologetics. How do we know anything? Uh, Could this world have just happened? Uh, Is evolution true? And I was forced into all those issues, and I studied hard. C.S. Lewis became my favorite author. And I came to the conclusion after two years of preaching out there, I needed to go to seminary. So I did. And God called me back into full-time ministry. So I've been through all this struggle. The psalmist said, When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. I remember in a psychology class, this was back when B.F. Skinner was uh, kind of the man, and it was all stimulus response. And the teacher told us, point blank, says you really don't have free will. You really aren't making decisions on your own. You're just simply responding to the stimulus that's out there. If the stimulus was different, you'd do something different. You're not free. Well, I suppose that set a lot of people free because if they felt like they needed to go out on a weekend and party, 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 well, it's just their fault. It's just the way they're wired. You're free to do anything because you have no freedom. Interesting twist. You're just forced along. The psalmist says, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply Till I entered the sanctuary of God Then I understood their final destiny. Now that was more than just simply going to church. This might have happened as he was in the temple, but that's not the issue. He obviously had been in the temple before, and it hadn't clicked. This is talking about coming into the presence of God, into the holy place, wrestling with who is God. Who am I? Why am I here? Does God know about me? Does he care about me? And then how can I connect with God? This troubled me deeply, he said, until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood And you see, these questions are answered as we move closer and closer to God, not as we run away. So if you're struggling, the answer is to turn towards God and move closer, seeking to understand him. And you may not be able to figure it out on your own, but there are people who can help you. There are books that are out there. Uh, there are literal libraries full of books on apologetics, proving without doubt that Christianity is true, that the Bible is the word of God. It's out there. But too often what happens when you're having a sort of struggle is you just kind of keep drifting in the wrong direction. You never do find the answer that you need. Well, he tells us what he learned till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Verses 18 to 20 tells us what really happens to the wicked. Surely you, that is you, God, surely God placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. Uh, You see, their chosen opposition to God is dangerous, and it leads to ultimate ruin. The fact is, think about this, you cannot win against God. It just doesn't work. It can't. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. You think of the ongoing parade of famous and rich and powerful people who collapse. And some fall quickly and publicly, and others will finally and completely fall in the presence of God. I think of Frank Sinatra. You remember his song I did it my way? Yeah. And now the end is near and so I face that final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear, I'll state my case of which I'm certain I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway and more, much more than that. I did it my way. Regrets? I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do, and saw, saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more than this, I did it my way. I've loved, I've laughed, I've cried, I've had my fill, my share of losing, and now as tears subside, I find it all so amusing. To think I did all that, and may I say, not in a shy way, no, 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 not me, I did it my way. One of the most famous persons of his era, some of you younger people won't know him, but anybody who's, you know, as old as John here uh, (laughs) would certainly know of Frank Sinatra. And here's the last verse. Imagine him stepping into the presence of God with this arrogance. He says, God, I want to kind of sing a song before we get into this conversation about, uh, you know, the life I lived. Uh, listen closely, God. And he comes to the last verse. For what is a man? What is he, God? If not himself, then he has not to say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and I did it my way. Yes, it was my way. The text says, you've placed them on slippery ground, you cast them down in ruin, how suddenly they're destroyed and completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream. And here he's talking about how unsubstantial they are. They appear to those of us who live down here as strong, as powerful, as wise, as mega somehow. But from God's point of view, They're like a dream when one awakens. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. You see these people who are so big and have such clout down here. These people are nothings to God in their opposition to him. Think of Putin. They're without substance. They're like characters in a dream. Poof, and they're gone. Soon to be marked as failures and confined forever in that small and distant place called hell. And they lose their power over us when we awaken to God's truth and see them for what they really are. And here's the challenge. Should I base my desires, my hopes, my dreams, my worldview on characters that are poof, they're nothing? He admits, when my heart was grieved because I was missing out, and my spirit embittered, God, why haven't you supplied this for me? He says, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a brute beast before you. How stupid of me to have thought this way. I was like a dumb dog, a cow, uh, without rational sense. And then he comes to this wonderful conclusion. And here's the profound reality of being under God's care. And there are four facts here to note. He says, yet I'm always with you. Wonderful. You hold me by my right hand. And he's telling us that even when he went through this dark time with all these questions, God was holding him. Doesn't say I was holding your hand, God. It says you were holding my hand. I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. He was there to help him through this difficult time. And afterwards, you take me into glory. What a wonderful thing that is. And then he goes on to say, Whom have I in heaven but you? There's no other God out there but you. And he rejected the appeal of worshiping Baal or Ashtaroth. Or Moloch, he was only going to worship the Creator, the Sustainer, the Covenant-keeping Jehovah. Whom have I in heaven on but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. And he came to realize that only heaven's values are eternal. All else is a lie. It's a deception. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. His conclusion is that God is all that matters. And God is now again at the center of his worldview. Then he describes the final end of the wicked and the righteous. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. And the fact of the matter is, that in the end, God must win. How could it be any different than that? C.S. Lewis says there's only two kinds of people. Those who say, thy will be done, note this, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. You didn't want me anymore? You didn't want anything to do with me? So I'm sending you off to a dark and distant place called hell. Only two kinds of people. C.S. Lewis said again, in the end, there are only two options. To be like God or to be miserable. Those are the only choices. 1 John two fifteen to 17 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. And his final words are these, But as for me, it is good to be near God. That's what's really good, to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord Interesting. The one who's in control of everything. He's sovereign. He's in charge. And the word Lord refers to the one who keeps his promises. You could put it this way. I have made the one who's in charge of everything and who keeps all of his promises my refuge. I hide in him. He's my safe place. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. His conclusion is straightforward. God is all that matters. Do you ever wonder if you made the right choice in following God? Some facts to think about. If God exists, and if this is his world, then it all has to end on his terms. How could it be otherwise? If God is good, those who follow him will enjoy his blessing, his favor in this life and in the next. (laughs) It's good for one to follow God because God is good and will get in on that goodness. And then if God opposes evil, Scripture says he does. If God opposes evil, then those who chose evil have chosen to oppose God and be separated from him forever. That's what this psalm is telling us. Those who refuse God's help must save themselves, and that's an impossible task. Are you wondering? Are you tempted? (laughs) Let me just suggest that an honest search will lead you back to God, just like it did for the psalmist. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, you know our hearts. You know the temptations we face. You know how often we're tempted to wander, thinking somehow the grass is greener on the other side. And yet it's because we've not gotten to know you And Lord, give us the courage to turn back to you, to press into you, to search it out, to be honest, to seek help. And Lord, thank you that, just like the father in the prodigal son story, you're there to welcome us, to embrace us, to throw a feast in our honor as we turn back to you. Lord, how good you are, how patient you are, we're amazed. We're thrilled. Lord, you're so good, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. James and